It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Jim, sometimes at the weekend I take a break from the news and I was reading a, a very pleasing novel called News of the World by Paulette Giles. Check it out. Um, and then I get up on Monday morning and I dive in, into, the, into the newspapers online. And this past Monday morning, I saw this comment and I knew we had to interview this guy, a former diplomat who said, world leaders are weak, short-sighted, and mediocre. Not the most diplomatic way to put it, but certainly something I think there's a lot of truth to. And he was talking about human rights and the failure to defend human rights. So in this episode, is democracy in decline? Zaid Rod Al-Hussein joins us. Yeah, look, you know, there is no country that isn't working progress. Every country is working progress, and every country can be destroyed by a generation, maybe even less, of reckless politicians. There's no country that's so secure that it cannot be challenged from within and dismantled. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? We know democracy is in crisis in many parts of the world with declines in civil rights and human rights in dozens of countries in recent years. And especially alarming to me, Jim, is for the first time in many decades, the U.S. is led by a president who praises foreign dictators and rarely speaks up for democracy or democratic institutions. And that sends a terrible message to the rest of the world. Our guest today is the former U.N. High Commissioner on Human Rights, Zaid Rahad Al-Hussein. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you so much. Good morning. Now, you say that there was a time not too long ago when the world was making some progress in the fight for human rights and that human rights abusers really had something to fear from the international community. And that's changing now? First of all, I'm delighted to be joining you gentlemen this morning. Uh, as I left my home uh, not far away from where we are now, my daughter thought that I was coming to some sort of Bob the Builder convention because, <laughs> as you know, if you have young children, there's this uh, famous show and its byline is, can you fix it? And, <laughs> and the response is, yes, we can. So yes. she sent me on a mission. Look, we're constantly making progress in human rights across a wide range of concerns. We've always been 
making progress. What frightens us is that we have so much to lose now. And at the extreme end of the violations of human rights, yes, we see a growing sense of impunity, uh, a sense that you can bomb villages and hospitals, bomb civilian areas, marketplaces, which are protected under international law and essentially get away with it. So, and, so the way that, that global leaders are responding to some of these crises ha- has changed, yes? Well, the problem we have is that we live in a world now of constant sound. You can't switch on, you can't go anywhere without people constantly opining about various issues. And all of this creates a cloud which screens us from a very dangerous silence that exists. And that silence exists at the level of heads of government or heads of state. They don't call each other out. I don't know whether they really care whether the UN is uh, attacking them for one issue or another or a journalist of high repute. I don't know whether they really care, but I think they would care if one of their own were to say something. And what we've seen now uh, over the many years is a sort of cowardice that sort of has settled in uh, and or a transactional way of doing things where you know you have these politicians who won't say what they should be saying. I suppose because they're worried that trade relations are at risk, the defense contract that they're trying to negotiate with a particular country is at risk, and so they don't do it. You know, there are 193 foreign ministers around the world. 193. Let's assume we need 20 gifted ones. I mean, really gifted, steeped in knowledge about economics and history and law with a global vision. Can you name 20 for me? And if I were to say to you that I have asked this question in countless universities, countless institutes, and they all look at me the way you two are looking at me now. And I say, okay, if you can't name 20, name 10. Only 10 out of 193 gifted ones. And you still have a problem. Well, you have a problem because you haven't answered the question. (laughs) So, of course, we have a problem. Right. I mean, and this, this amply demonstrates to us the weaknesses within the system, and why it is we have politicians, or let's say heads of state and government, that are not willing to say anything. So that's what really struck me, was that comment you made that world leaders are weak, short-sighted, and and mediocre. More so than in the past? Do you disagree? No, I don't at all. But more so than in the past? I think more so than in the past. Who are some of the leaders from the past that you would look back to as real visionaries or people who dealt with chaotic, dangerous situations and pushed them towards peace and, and some form of global agreement rather than conflict? Well, I don't think you need to go very far. Those in the immediate period after the Second World War were wise enough to realize that if we didn't have a global system that we basically tried to maintain and upgrade, we could not trust ourselves. I mean, I ask my law students, why do we have law? Why do we have law? We need law because we are untrustworthy. We have this remarkable blend of brilliance and stupidity, all mixed up inside of us and in our societies. And if you get the wrong mixture at the wrong time, it's disastrous. I mean, I, you, know, you look at, for instance, how people are so fixated in this city, in New York City, about the stock market. And I have this image that the day before the end, the last day on earth, 
we're going to see a headline, you know, stocks on the rise, investors happy. No correlation between that and what we're seeing in the real world, you know. To Jim's question, though, any yeah. specific examples of... Well, I mean, of- look, the idea that you can now practice a politics whereby you take the real anxieties of people and you whip them into a sort of ferocious venom and lob it at a vulnerable population. This is not new politics. It was tried in the 1920s and 30s to devastating effect. But also, you know, when you look at the Truman-Eisenhower administrations, the Marshall, and he wins with 55% of the vote. The practice of hatred... Also, we know it's we know it's a powerful political tool, but it, you just can't go there, and we are going there, and I think it's partly because we're forgetting, you know, how how dangerous we can be to ourselves. Is it possible that part of that forgetting is a almost bizarre selectiveness in what we focus on around the world? We did a show with Liz Economy from the Council on Foreign Relations recently about what's happening in China and the oppression of the Muslim minority, the Uyghurs in Western China, where people are literally in prison camps and you could go weeks without hearing it mentioned by our politicians or often by our our journalists. What are some of the other flashpoints around the world that you feel have have been allowed to, to continue and grow partly because they haven't claimed a part of the world's attention? Well, there's so many. I mean, if we look at Venezuela, the human rights community writ large began to really express concern in 2011. There was a a case, a particular judge in Venezuela who was removed from her position and prosecuted for a decision that she had taken in a previous case. And all the alarm bells began to ring. And this was still under Chavez that the judiciary was being perverted by political influence. And when I took over the UN Human Rights Office, um, I I spoke about these issues in 2014. Only Spain from Europe and the United States, which traditionally has something to say about Venezuela, were speaking. No one else was saying anything. Why not? Well, you have to ask them. You know, if there had been a large number of Latin American heads of state and government saying, look, you cannot do this. You cannot do this. Perhaps that confrontation between the Supreme Court and National Assembly wouldn't have happened. Yeah. In other words, in other words, pay attention to these details. And um, and if you don't, as someone once said to me, and he had just come back from Northern Rakhine, and he said to me, you know, Zay, don't forget, today's human rights violations are tomorrow's conflicts. Yeah. How many how many conflicts today are pure boundary disputes, right? And even if they were, if they were there's some connection to the denial of human rights of the communities in the adjacent areas and so forth. In that way, maybe you could see Venezuela as something of a bellwether in this alarming trend that a democratic state, one with a a, a leader who's elected by popular vote, and Chavez was quite popular for a time, can gradually dismantle the institutions of democracy and human rights. Yeah, Yeah. We're seeing that in Turkey. Yeah, look, you know, there is no country that isn't working progress. Every country is working progress, and every country can be destroyed by a generation, maybe even less, of reckless politicians. There's no country that's so secure that it cannot be challenged from within and dismantled. 
if we decide it's a free-for-all and everyone's going to fight for themselves and no one has to give a damn about this, the larger ship we're on. Well, I used to view it as a sort of ocean liner, right? And we're all on this ocean liner. And the countries that are at, at the bottom end of the economic development scale are sort of somewhere in stowage. And then as you move up, you go to middle-income countries and then the OECD at the top, and then maybe the U.S. has the stateroom. If every country is worried only about the preservation of their space, not having any intruder enter it, and they would just worry about that space and not worry about the ship itself, well, the ship will founder eventually. And I think that's the, the overriding concern. Who's worried about the ship? You know, I mean, we all live on that same ship. My sense, though, is that there is a gathering of sentiment now. You see it in the extinction protests in London. You see it in the incredible work of of Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old Swedish girl who's now galvanized half of Europe's students to protest every Friday. Um, even About my, global warming. Global warming. Even my daughter led a protest in her school here in, in the city. And and that's where we where we hope the change will come. And we we need people to say enough. Enough of this polarized societies, extremes being courted when we know what happens eventually. You know, once you get a chauvinistic nationalism really riled up outside of conflict, I don't know how you resolve it. We have uh, an institution designed to help us resolve global conflicts. You spent much of your, your career there. Help me clear up something I think that might be a little confusing to listeners. So you were the, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, a kind of archaic <laughs> title from the yeah. 19th century. What is the connection between that office and the, and the United Nations Human Rights Council that, yeah. that uh, grapples with a lot of these issues? Two different things. The council is a, a body made up of countries, 47 of them. And they would basically issue my office with mandates, ask us to investigate, produce a report. But I could also do so on my own and uh, then inform the council. So the council is a body comprised of the governments themselves. And I sometimes was mistaken for being the president of that council, and I was not. Because, and, because that human rights council has yeah. been very unbalanced in some of its uh, yeah, its, you, its criticisms. Yeah, I mean, look, it's comprised of governments, right? right? Show me a government that has been very open about its own violations when it accuses others. There is double standards, double dealing, hypocrisy. All of that is there in plentiful supply. But that doesn't mean that the mechanisms don't work. The other mechanisms, you have a group of special rapporteurs, experts, who uh, on many occasions courageously will say what they need to say about the state of human rights across the world. Uh, and one shouldn't forget also, at least with the member states themselves, there's a peer review system where every country subjects its human rights record to the review of its peers. And that's quite unusual, and that's, that's something that we need to protect. And the basis of all of the human rights architecture are these human rights treaties which anchor, they either prohibit something like torture or in, you know, enforced disappearance, or they promote child rights, women's rights, rights of migrants, and so forth. So, so 
this conversation has a certainly a kind of a oblique <laughs> element to it, but the UN has had a lot of successes in some of these areas. Tell us about some things that you've been involved in that, where you walked away saying, wow, you know, that turned out a lot better than it might have. Look, first of all, I, I, you know, I, when I used to serve many years ago down in uh, Washington, D.C. as my country's ambassador, and this, I used this to— This is Jordan. Yes, yeah. and I used to hear members of Congress attack the U.N., and I would say to them, you know, you think the UN is just these conferences where the governments get together and endless, you know, soporific, deadly almost speeches. And for me, that is not the UN. For me, the UN is when I go into these very hard-pressed areas and I see people doing amazing things, which most people would not even begin to contemplate given the dangers involved. It affects me when people attack those people in the UN, because I feel like saying, how dare you? You go and live for a few months in the worst part of Libya and and how long you can withstand the pressure. I think there's so many in the UN who are just heroic and every tribute must be paid to them. And without them, certainly, the world would be a messier place. Perhaps we wouldn't even be where we are now. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Zaid Rad Al-Hussein, who is the former UN High Commissioner or UN Human Rights Chief and also a former Jordanian Ambassador to Washington, among other roles. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So at this point, in our podcast, we usually pivot towards solutions. And one solution that comes right to mind when you were just talking about the UN is that without the UN, things could be a lot worse. Could you make the case for that? Yes, but the UN itself, I feel, needs to open up its vocal cords. It needs to speak it needs to call a spade a spade. It can't, you know, duck and deflect and and hope for better weather so that it can then shine. I mean, it's precisely when it's so paralyzed and gloomy that the UN needs to assert itself, and it's not doing so at the moment. Um, you know, this morning I received an email from the last surviving prosecutor at Nuremberg, Ben Ferentz, who prosecuted the greatest murder trial in history. After World War II. After World War II. You ask me how we can fix it. He sent to me an email 
two words, keep screaming. So I would suggest a few things that we need to think about. One, we have to encourage all those who are silent to start screaming. In other words, those heads of state and government that are not saying anything, they should be saying something. Two, I would deny an interview to any former head of state or government who suddenly discovers their courage once they leave office, <laughs> why they are brought as experts, and they wax lyrical about all the things they should have said when they were in office and are given the space to say it once they're out, I don't know. But the response should be, I'm sorry, you should have said this when you were in office. It's no good now talking about all of this. Now you're out of office. And I think that point needs to be made. Because I think the, the worst of the abusers perhaps are beyond our reach. But again, they may be responsive to other heads of state and government who will say something. So we have to encourage that group uh, to be more expressive. But it does take more than harsh words sometimes to deter this well, how do you know? behavior. How do you know? I mean, can you give me an example of someone who has used harsh words against Rodrigo Duterte at the level of, of heads of government and state? Give me one example. Didn't know you're right about that. But Assad certainly came under a lot of criticism, and he's still there. That he came, but again, he, the criticism you know, was directed at him and his regime, but not against the coalition partners when it came to Yemen. So he could e easily say this is, this is politicized, right? Let and so you, you either uphold the standard or you don't uphold the standard. In human rights terms, simply put, there can't be any exceptions, right? And everyone's record should come under scrutiny. And I can tell you from my own experience, there is no country with a pristine record. And, and so every country has its own challenges. Every country needs to do better. Well, that begs this question. Talk about the work of people who risk their lives oh. defending human rights oh, in, in many parts of the world. If you really want to see courage, you go to these areas of the world where people are willing to risk everything, everything, their lives, access to their families. I mean, you know, I mean, the most horrific conditions for the sake of standing up on principle. And, you know, one has to remember that all social progress comes from these people. That, you know, it's not that suddenly overnight the entire population majority decide they want to get rid of slavery. I mean, slavery was a business. Uh, it was a business model that worked very well, uh, driven by, you know, appalling racism. It took a few very courageous leaders at great peril to themselves to, to stake the argument. The same with ending apartheid. And so what you require is people at the, at the you know, tip of the spear who are willing to take enormous risks for the sake of principle and to defend all others, not just your own kind, but all others, the rights of everyone. And that's the distinguishing feature between an extremist who thinks they're fighting for the rights of people and others who are defending the rights of everyone, everyone. Zaid Rod Al-Hussein, thanks for joining us at our table. Thank you so much. How do we Thank fix you. it? Thank you. Jim, I feel there's so much confusion about the UN and the United Nations is always coming in for criticism, for failing to speak out or being too bureaucratic. And there's a very important distinction being made here between what goes on 
in that beautiful skyscraper on the east side of Manhattan. And then the people on the ground, the personnel who work for the UN and often put their lives at risk in some of the poorest and most difficult parts of the world. Right. And politically, you know, a lot of the criticism of the UN is justified. And and it was important to clear up with Zaid that there is a difference between the office of the high commissioner on human rights that he was the head of. He was basically the top official for human rights and the United Nations Human Rights Council, which is that body of different governments. Yeah, it's made up of, I think, 47 governments. And, and it comes in for so much criticism because half the governments on it are notorious human rights violators, and especially that the vast majority of resolutions they've passed in recent years have dealt with just one country, yeah, Israel. Israel. And that raises a lot of concern and, and legitimate opposition from, uh, from many Americans, but also uh, others around the world. But I don't think that it's an argument for the entire United Nations to be swept away or ignored because there is so much good work that's being done on the ground. And that work is, I think, I think he just really movingly conveyed how that some of that happens and how we need an international ability to step into these crisis zones, put the warring parties apart, and begin to help people rebuild some kind of institutions to rein in violence and conflict. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. The theme music composed by Lou Stravinsky. And we're a production of Davies Content. Uh, check out our website, DaviesContent.com. If you're thinking about making a podcast, we can make the difference between boring and a lot better. Thanks for listening. Wait, that's just, just better than boring? A Richard, lot better. Come on. A lot better. <laughs> where's your, where's your <laughs> podcast? Where's, where, yeah, where's my passion? Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.